drugs are cheaper, right? And yeah. so they're going to be much more prominent and prevalent in uh, in the political discourse. With I think, you know, a short-term gain in people being able to to kind of make fun of and smear their opponents, but in the long run, they're going to become so prevalent that that basically we're going to have. We're going to ignore even, yeah, even, even our, the, e the evidence of our eyes. Right, even the evidence of our eyes, which if you really think about it, and, and I'm going to take this to another level, means that video blackmail is at an end. Episode 265 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Disclaimer, I should say that the uh, views expressed here don't ex uh, reflect the opinions of our firms, our clients, our spouses, or our children, uh, or frankly, uh, us three weeks from now. I'm joined today by Paul Rosenzweig, uh, founder of Red Branch Consulting and uh, senior fellow at the R Street Institute, uh, by David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly assistant attorney general in charge of the National Security Division of Justice, uh, by Gus Hurwitz, associate professor of law and co-director of the Space Cyber and Telecom Program at the University of Nebraska, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for the day. Why don't we jump into this week in China paranoia? Because there's incredible amount happening, uh, all of it hostile uh, to China in Washington. Uh, Paul, uh, the blacklist of companies that uh, uh, the U.S. is trying to uh, either put out of business or severely cripple gets larger, but the reason is different again. Uh, the uh, attacks on uh, Hikvision and several other Chinese surveillance companies is a essentially putting them on a list of companies not to be done business with uh, uh, by U.S. companies uh, on grounds that they were assisting in the oppression of Uyghurs in the west of China. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that our approach to China telecoms is completely incoherent and lacks a strategy. I, I'm actually all for the idea that Huawei technology should not be in the IC community, right? Because the cost-benefit analysis, the risk assessment is just too grave. I am struggling to find a reason why private sector American companies shouldn't be using something like Hikvision if they chose to make that cost-benefit analysis for themselves and determine that the reputational risks of associating with a company that is screwing the Uyghurs, is balanced out by the fact that it's really good tech that's cheap and, and useful to use. You know, this kind of begs the question, you know, how come there aren't a lot more Rush, uh, Chinese companies on the, that list, if, if that's your argument? Lenovo products, for example, or, or just about uh, Alibaba, you know, as well, has had uh, approach, uh, connections to the oppression of Uyghurs. And it begs the question of why we haven't, Banned Russian products as well because the Russians are oppressing the Crimeans and the U and the Eastern Ukrainians in ways that are pretty well regarded. I, yeah, I, well, fair enough. Although you know, part of this is just uh, you. Uh, I mean, it's a little like complaining that um, uh, a shotgun is not a, a an aimed weapon. It's still potentially in the right circumstances exactly the weapon you want. It uh, could very well be, but I mean, it, it strikes me that the right answer here is to kind of divide the field to to 
true tech risks. Right. In which this in is which, clearly not about tech risks. Exactly. In which case, the answer is, you know, this is a part of a broader effort to to fight the China trade war. And it's mostly on the backs of tech companies because Trump has figured out that he can do it in that context and everybody will go, yeah, man, yeah, man. And, and you know, and we'll probably, I'll probably go, yeah, man, yeah, man, if he, with respect to Huawei and, and ZTE and maybe Lenovo. But I kind of wonder about making the tech sector bear all this burden when we should be banning, I don't know, Chinese cars, Chinese steel uh, as part of the trade wars as well. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, feeding your uh, suspicion that uh, DHS has warned companies uh, that uh, Chinese drones might compromise their uh, networks or their data. Well, uh, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, and I suppose that that's a possibility. But, you know, so might uh, Israeli-made drones, <laughs> for that matter. And indeed, given the relative capabilities, I'd actually be a little more suspicious of Israeli-made drones. So it, 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 we are at a point, I guess, in Washington where you can really kind of do anything you want to Chinese companies uh, without fear that somebody is going to criticize you. It's it's one of the few uh, bipartisan programs. Uh, Schumer, uh, you know, uh, Senator Schumer said, don't is, backtrack. Exactly. <laughs> you know, don't you be dare. When 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 President Trump said, well, maybe I'll relie- relax on Huawei because if they if they come to a deal with us. So Trump, I mean, really, President Trump sees sanctions as a kind of operationalist effort to uh, to get a better trade deal. Uh, the NSA sees some Chinese companies as legitimate threats to critical national security interests. And Senator Schumer sees China as a threat to American jobs, I guess. Well, I, here's, here's, here's the, the rule I derive from our time in government, which is that you can never expect uh, the Democrats to praise a Republican initiative. You need to be satisfied when they criticize it for not going far enough. That's right. That I that that it, all of this reminds me of Dubai Port Swirl. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> for those who don't know, on the podcast, that was a Dubai Port Swirl bought the ownership of some ports in America, and uh, we were critiqued for not going far enough and not being afraid of Dubai Ports World owning America's porting. Yeah. Authority. So, uh, it, 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 but given that that's the direction from which the Trump administration is being criticized, there's just no downside to uh, to doing harsh things to Chinese companies right now. We, we may discover a, a Except, of course, for the fact that it means that the American consumer won't actually have access to reasonably good tech at a reasonable well, and, price. And U.S. companies aren't going to get a lot of Chinese help. Uh, a lot of Chinese scientists coming in to help them with their chips. Uh, there's all, all sorts of complaints now that uh, the deemed export, the, the teaching Chinese citizens about uh, chip design so that you can get something from Is them, that, suddenly uh, that's not being here, 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 here's Here's the worst case scenario, and, and it's actually coming. Qualcomm, Broadcom, stocks are down 6 8% since the Huawei Huawei went on the de- uh, on the uh, mm-hmm. prohibited entity list. Why? Because Huawei buys their chips. Yeah, I'm sure that they were. In the end, wa- yeah. in the end, my guess is that China will move forward faster in making its own chip uh, industry uh, to the long term detriment of Western companies that set- sell to them. So we pick this fight, we better win it. Yes. Uh, okay. Um, speaking of picking fights, I, uh, the 
NSA clearly developed Eternal Blue, which is a, a very effective uh, tool for moving laterally in networks. Uh, and uh, when they discovered it had been compromised by the Russians, they told Microsoft about it. Microsoft issued a patch. Uh, and since then, people who haven't quickly patched their networks, or at least now it's two years later, if you didn't patch your network at all, have been victimized by ransomware uh, and other attacks uh, uh, that use Eternal Blue. The New York Times wrote an article that I thought was just kind of unbelievably wrongheaded, saying, oh, gosh, poor Baltimore. They've been the victim of NSA. You kind of say, well, where were their CISOs for two years? A question that the New York Times never asks. Uh, this strikes me as agenda-driven journalism, since uh, the story itself was probably two years old. Uh, David, uh, that's my, my take on it. What's your thinking about the, the story? There you go again, Stuart, <laughs> blaming the victim. So it, it is uh, treating, treating this at a minimum as an interesting hypothetical uh, about what could happen if NSA lost control of an exploit and without commenting on whether any of these facts are actually true. You know, they did apparently notify Microsoft in 2017. And so you know, it does it does definitely raise the question which the Times passed over as to why folks don't do the most basic thing in updating, you know, and patching their software because modern Windows versions protect against this exploit. I think the other you know, question that the Times, I thought, didn't do a great job really presenting in a thoughtful way was how should NSA or the U.S. intelligence community regulate the use of this kind of uh, exploit or software code, which like any tool or weapon can be used for good and can be used for evil, depending on how you define these terms. It, it, it actually reminds me a little bit, I was talking to Nate Jones, my business partner and culprit this morning, about like how we deployed Stinger missiles to Afghanistan. Uh, and that was, you know, Charlie Wilson's war and very helpful at the time. But when folks switch sides, those Stinger missiles get pointed in the other direction and they're now used against you. What it shows, I think, is, you know, whether you analogize these software exploits to a bomb uh, or to a pickup truck, which Admiral Rogers did, or to a warehouse full of automatic weapons, which one FBI agent did, you know, or something else. The key is, you know, when, when and how should NSA use, develop, and exploit these kinds of uh, vulnerabilities? Some people say never. Some people say always. Um, there's a cost-benefit analysis to be had here, and the real action's sort of in the middle. If they're too promiscuous and loose, then you get the Charlie Wilson's war backlash, and you have what Baltimore is experiencing um, and yes, Baltimore should have updated its software, but the brute fact on the ground is that not everybody does that. So clearly, even from a pure warfighting perspective, you got to be careful with how you use this stuff. You can't just use it too loosely. On the other hand, if you're too restrictive, then you are going to give up various opportunities to gain intelligence or do other valuable things for the United States. So there has to be a thoughtful policy here. The environment has shifted. The, the playing field has much leveled from the olden days. And USIC has got to come up with some thoughtful ways of dealing with that. Yeah, Stuart, if I, I can hop in, uh, there's another aspect of the New York Times article that's really frustrating. Uh, they, they write this as though Eternal Blue and the NSA created the concept of malware. 
Um, the reality is uh, Eternal Blue does very little to allow the initial compromise of systems. It's mostly about lateral movement between systems that have already been compromised. And most malware nowadays includes Eternal Blue along with a host of other techniques for lateral movement. Um, the reality is uh, the Baltimore systems were compromised not as a result of Eternal Blue but through some other vector. And the lateral movement, uh, from what I've seen uh, uh, discussed, was probably not via the eternal blue mechanism. And even if it were in this case, in uh, other cases, it's not. So it's really curious and demonstrates the political bent of the article to say, hey, eternal blue made Baltimore happen. When in fact, Eternal Blue is just one of many, many tools. Uh, it's two years uh, out of date. It should have been patched. The discussion, uh, just from a completely domestic civilian cybersecurity perspective, um, is equally frustrating. So, Stuart, the, I want to add one more factor to this that this article just kind of calls out as pretty remarkable. Towards the end of the Obama administration, the singularly most controversial question was this whole idea of a vulnerabilities equities process. That is how the government would determine whether or not to hoard a vulnerability for offensive use or disclose a vulnerability for uh, defensive use by industry. And one of the fundamental assumptions of the vulnerabilities equities process was if we disclosed it to the public, they would actually patch and fix it right. so that there was, there was a value to the disclosure because we would at least be protecting ourselves against malicious activity. What this story reminds us is of something that the vulnerabilities equities process kind of hid and ignored, which is even if we disclose it, people don't patch. And so there's a lesser value to the public disclosure of a vulnerability than we thought because we don't get any of the benefit of it or we get less of the benefit of it than we thought because people don't patch and we lose the value of it, which is the disclosure of it. So this kind of reminds us that that whole VEP process needs to be refigured and recalculated in some way. I, I think that's right. In this in this case, they actually had Microsoft, which has an agenda and clearly they were uh, carrying it, that agenda out in the way this story is presented, but which at least does patch. Right. Uh, it, it treats these vulnerabilities very seriously. Not everybody, even some pretty um, respected names, are very good at patching all of the vulnerabilities they discuss. So there's two problems. First, there has to be a patch released. And second, then somebody, everybody has to install it. So yes, um, first prize for oversimplification to the New York Times. Uh, uh, I think that was Nicole Perlroth and somebody else, uh, Scott Shane. Here's one that I suspect is probably more to do than it, it, it deserves because we've gotten very little uh, details on, on what uh, happened. But uh, apparently in an effort to find leaks, and I we covered this uh, uh, last year, last week, and I've gotten a, an errata uh, from uh, one of our listeners who said it wasn't a Guantanamo case where the leaks were coming from. It was a war crimes trial uh, where the leaks were coming from, and one of the Navy investigators decided to – trace um, the uh, the leak by sending doctored graphics files along with all of his uh, submissions to the defense counsel uh, in an effort to figure out whether they were passing things on to a reporter who also got this. Uh, and now, since one of the defense counsel who got this was an Air Force JAG, uh, the Air Force is investigating the Navy for hostile cyber attacks on the Air Force. Um, uh, David, uh, 
I can't see anything that tells me whether this was anything more than the standard uh, tool that tells you whether somebody has opened or forwarded your email or whether it was full-blown malware. Can you tell? Uh, certainly not. Uh, but the story in the Air Force Times suggests that it was a bad kind of malware, a much broader kind of malware than just a routine you know, return receipt on email. Um, and, you know, as the person who nominated this story, I, I just like it because it resonates with so many other stories uh, and and tells us something about our world. I mean, this, this is actually the prosecution of Chief Gallagher in the uh, in the Navy, who President Trump, I gather, may be pardoning or something. Um, and, it, you know, it does resonate, even if it isn't about Gitmo, it resonates with the Gitmo surveillance of the defense lawyers or the alleged surveillance and reminds me of the kerfuffle between CIA and Sissy over the RDI investigation in which, you know, CIA was allegedly looking at, at Sissy and spying on the staff there. And I also like the inter-service rivalry element and the prosecutor defense lawyer rivalry element. Oh, no Air Force beat Navy. <laughs> Air Force Navy, sorry, yeah. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I actually think if this was some kind of specialized, you know, malware for tracking, uh, I think it, at a minimum it tells you that if you are the prosecutor in a case and there's a gag order and you just take it upon yourself to investigate who is doing the leaking, you, you should probably think twice and maybe have a proper review of such an investigation of your opponents in the litigation, you know, before just going ahead and doing that because, <laughs> you're going to get yourself into some hot water. And and maybe the other lesson is uh, whenever you're under investigation, attacking the investigators is uh, a tactic where at least half of America is going to be on your side. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. We talked a lot about deep fakes. I kind of like this one because it's about a cheap fake. Uh, this is the Pelosi slowed down video uh, um, uh, story. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, Paul, whether there's more to it, uh, although I loved that Kara Swisher wrote this op-ed saying, this is shocking. This is outrageous. Facebook should be defenestrated. Uh, no newspaper would publish this without repercussions. And in the online version of the New York Times, they published, they published it. it. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, no. Look, there, there are a couple things about this that are that are kind of worth thinking about. The first, of course, is that cheap fakes are cheaper, right? And yeah. so they're going to be much more prominent and prevalent in uh, in the political discourse with, I think, you know, a short-term gain in people being able to, to kind of make fun of and smear their opponents. But in the long run, they're going to become so prevalent that, that basically we're going to have we're going to ignore even, even, even our, the, e the evidence of our eyes. Right. Even the evidence of our eyes, which if you really think about it, and, and I'm going to take this to another level, means that video blackmail is at an end. Yeah. That is not me. <sighs> that Just is a deep for fake. Me. <laughs> yeah, that is, a, that is a deep fake of me. And, and in, the, in the not too terribly distant future, the veracity of video is going to be so doubtful that uh, we're going to have a lot of problems uh, and and I'm not sure that's a good thing. I, in fact, I tend to think it's a very bad thing, but I think it is a likely thing. What I do think it will mean, however, and and we've sort of seen this already with the Pelosi deepfakes, uh, cheap fake is their value is already draining. You know, it gets it gets retweeted even by the president, and within ten minutes or an hour, it's debunked. And you know, 
it it's a value, I guess, to his supporters, but they didn't need it to to be his supporters. And it will persuade in the end nobody. Yeah. Well, it, it's just the world we live in. Yeah. No. So we are we are quickly reaching a, a a world in which we are so pervasively propagandized that we don't care. And uh, I guess that kind of makes you wonder whether or not the truth actually can ever catch up with the falsity or and get its boots on at all. Yeah. Thank no, you, Mark I, Twain. You're, you're, you're probably right. Uh, uh, and that leads us to revenge porn. Since, uh, <laughs> it we, leads you to revenge <laughs> porn. It does not lead well, me there. Well, I, I was I was planning on uh, the deep fake uh, uh, defense there. Yes. Um, I, uh, Gus, uh, there's a story in the Washington Post about a particular revenge porn scenario in which uh, the cheated upon wife gets access to the cheater's texts and um, uh, sexts and publishes it to all her friends to explain why the uh, why she is uh, not staying with the uh, the cheating. Um, I'm not sure he was a spouse, but a uh, long term uh, partner. And that does raise the question whether that publication other publications under revenge porn are consistent with the First Amendment because this was actually she was publishing something that was true. But it uh, clearly falls within the ambit of most revenge porn statutes. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the First Amendment discussion of uh, revenge porn or uh, non-consensual pornography. Uh, do we have a couple hours to talk about this, Stuart? <laughs> no. um, th th this is a, a huge and hugely complicated issue, and it's going to uh, probably get uh, more complicated um, in uh, uh, the coming months. Um, so the, the story that was being discussed there, I think it's uh, an Illinois case. Um, we also have, uh, uh, I think we now have 46 states, uh, which includes Nebraska, which I think just uh, enacted uh, its first uh, revenge porn uh, law uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, that have statutes that prohibit uh, through various uh, mechanisms and statutory structures uh, the uh, distribution of non-consensual pornography. Um, we have a couple of state Supreme Court uh, cases uh, that have reached different outcomes here. Uh, Vermont had a challenge. Um, that uh, upheld uh, a, a revenge pornography statute and uh, Texas had one that overturned it. These are two very different statutes, however, and the big fracture point when you look at these statutes is whether there's an intent requirement, so an intent to do harm or cause embarrassment or do something bad with the distribution as opposed to uh, um, mere distribution without any uh, uh, particular intent. Um, the uh, Texas statute did have an intent requirement. I uh, did not have an intent requirement. The Vermont one did have an intent requirement. Um, and uh, a federal statute uh, has uh, just been uh, introduced as well. And I, I uh, uh, will give a couple of shout outs. First, I have to say uh, this is an incredibly hard issue. Um, uh, revenge pornography is disgusting and clearly problematic speech. Uh, and in my normative heart of hearts, it should be illegal. Um, and uh, a couple of folks, including uh, Marianne Franks, uh, Daniel Citron, and Kerry Goldberg, have been doing tireless work to figure out how do we do this because there are real harms here for the last several years. On the other hand, uh, it's a really difficult uh, speech issue. 
uh, as you said, uh, mere distribution of true speech is very difficult to prohibit under the First Amendment, even if it is harmful, to the point that free speech uh, advocates, uh, stalwarts like the ACLU, uh, academics like Andy Koppelman at uh, Northwestern, have uh, serious concerns about these statutes. Um, I mention uh, Koppelman because uh, he has an article uh, out uh, somewhat recently that tackles a lot of the First Amendment challenges to these. And just to uh, uh, highlight uh, uh, three of the big ones, especially uh, uh, post the Supreme Court's uh, Snyder and uh, Reed opinions, these are content-based speech restrictions. Um, they are very arguably viewpoint based restrictions. And arguably, uh, these restrictions are prior restraints on speech. You need to get someone's permission before you can post truthful speech about them. Um, so we're in very difficult First Amendment territory if we want to prohibit these forms of speech. The uh, flip side is if you say, well, that's prohibiting uh, intentional speech and intent speech that has an intent to cause harm. Well, that's good. So that is definitely a good start. But a lot of the times the distribution of the speech isn't intending to cause harm. Either it's third party redistribution, it's a website hosting this content, or my intent uh, isn't to cause harm uh, to uh, uh, my uh, ex. My intent is to be an asshole and just uh, post pornography online. I don't care about my ex. He or she is my ex. Um, I don't care if they're harmed by this. Uh, I'm just doing this because I uh, uh, enjoy doing this. So I, I know I've been uh, uh, talking uh, for an extended block. The last thing they'll say, uh, uh, however, is that really the outcome here, if we want to prohibit this form of speech, is the Supreme Court is going to need to step in and say this is a, a special category of speech like um, obscenity or uh, child harming uh, uh, content that is not protected under the First Amendment or needs to be tied to uh, some non-speech harm, such as through an intent requirement. And that's always going to be an incomplete solution. So uh, the one thing that isn't um, being said is this woman was in the business of disseminating facts She's just like the press, and uh, and ind indicting her for doing that is like uh, indicting Julian Assange or the New York Times. Um, yeah. uh, so, uh, uh, you know, if you if you're looking at for intent, there isn't any doubt that Julian Assange's intent was to do as much harm as he possibly could, and indeed, I think that is an element of the uh, uh, of the Espionage uh, Act mm -hmm. charges against him. Uh, David, you were in the government uh, when charges against Assange uh, were first uh, mooted. Uh, and I won't ask you for interior discussions, but uh, a lot of people are saying there was no way the Obama administration would have brought these charges because it's so obviously an intrusion on the First Amendment. But we've just heard that, uh, you know, uh, criminalizing dissemination of true facts might not be so problematic after all. What's your thought? Well, first, I'd like to congratulate you on a magnificent and elegant transition from revenge <laughs> porn to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Second, really? Just... I got a whiplash on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, second, I think um, I left DOJ in 2011, so I actually think all of ah, okay. Assange was going on. But in any event, you're right. I, I will just uh, look at it from an external point of view. I mean, look, I, I think there are three ways to see this indictment. 
First, it's a reaction to journalists publishing more and more classified information, whether it's true, whether it's false. Jack Goldsmith has looked at it in that light, and I think it's a sensible way to look at it. The line between so-called respectable journalists and others is also under stress and blurring, largely because of the internet. Second, you can look at it as a reaction to the blurry lines and increasingly blurry lines between foreign intelligence and journalism, with journalists tending to adopt what looks like espionage-style tradecraft and intelligence services now getting into the business of publishing, as we see sort of with the GRU and the indictments brought by Mueller uh, about their actions here, because now it's not necessary just to steal information. You can actually make some headway in covert action or so-called active measures and election interference and sociopolitical disruption by publishing. And then, of course, the third way to see it uh, is that the Trump administration is furthering its jihad against the enemy of the people. Uh, So of those three, I'm actually most dubious about the third and inclined to see it in light of the first two uh, factors. That is not so much something that's unique and special to the Trump administration. I do think if the president had his way, of course, any story critical of him personally uh, would be censored and the publisher put immediately in prison or sent to Gitmo. But I do think, on the other hand, that these first two systemic factors are really what is driving this. Um, Sure, this DOJ, John Demers, may have felt more freedom of action to bring this case than I would have felt uh, in the Obama administration just because of the White House position, although, frankly, the president's relationship with WikiLeaks has been what you might call ambivalent. So, yeah, but the New York Times was part of his base. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, this president's relationship with... Yes, uh, I, I, I do think you're right. CNN is sort of just right behind China in terms of uh, the institution most easily abused without pushback from the administration. So, David, yeah. uh, this is, Paul, a question for you. If you see this as a, as, as a response to systemic factors, then that suggests that it really isn't the intent to harm issue that that Stuart was talking about, uh, which which I would use to distinguish Assange from, say, the Times or CNN, Mm -hmm. who don't have that same thing. But it really is uh, more if your systemic analysis is right, it really is a an effort that's sort of characterizable as a fundamental resetting of the balance between uh, the free press and its access to classified information and the government's ability to to restrain that or punish its dissemination. So I guess I'm, I, my question is, I'm going to ask you, which do you see it as? Is this a, a one-off from which people should not take any, any lessons because it's Assange and everybody knows he's a dingwa? Or is it uh, actually a harbinger of a bigger transition that will continue post-Trump? It's an excellent question. Um, I think the way I look at it is that This is, from the current administration's perspective, from a prosecutor's perspective, a good vehicle because of these extra factors. Assange is a very unsavory and and unappealing guy in a lot of ways to many people. Uh, But I think the theory that is behind this case, if it's pushed to a logical conclusion, is a broader theory and is relevant to these more systemic questions. So this, if you are the most concerned about journalistic freedom, you see this as potentially what you might call a hard case that makes bad law. Assange, you know, most people, many people think is an unpleasant guy, but the implications of the case are potentially far reaching. And it's difficult, even with this harms 
theory, I think, to bring this case and not have concerns that it might be uh, that the theory might be used more widely. Yeah, I'll uh, hop in uh, and tie together um, perhaps as we uh, transition to more of me speaking, both the uh, revenge pornography and the Assange discussion. Uh, I think these are two cases that could both very easily end up uh, uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, in the uh, next term or two. Um, And we have seen a series of cases on really hard uh, and increasingly uh, modern technology free speech issues. Um, I think that uh, the court is going to be uh, thinking through a lot of these issues, uh, the relationship of the press and online intermediaries uh, and uh, uh, harmful speech in the age of um, mass speech in the next couple of years. And I've got no idea uh, how the court uh, is likely to come out or, for that matter, should come out, because these are really hard issues. I don't think we're going to see Assange in the Supreme Court until he served his sentence in the, the UK and then fought extradition for four years uh, and then gone to trial and then appealed. Uh, it'll be it'll be years before the, uh, the Supreme Court gets this one. Uh, let me Fair I, point. I, I, I would like to, to, to ask this question. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how nothing happens in a bipartisan way in Washington anymore, and that's not actually true. Lots of bills pass if both parties are more or less favorable to them, uh, uh, or they get a sense that the you know the the country is absolutely determined to see legislation passed. And one of those is the bill that the Senate just passed on robocalling. Uh, my question for you is: um, My suspicion has always been that whenever you find a bipartisan bill, there's a lot buried in it that maybe we should be more uncomfortable with than we really are because nobody has any interest in arguing about that. Uh, so I'm going to ask Gus this uh, robocalling bill. Is it all just unicorns and rainbows or is there a problem? I'm going to say something amazing, Stuart, and this bill is uh, largely unicorns and rainbows. All right. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, pretty incredible unless or until the House manages to screw it up. Uh, so the the bill, uh, it's called the Traced Bill. It was uh, uh, introduced uh, by uh, Thune, who knows a, a thing or two about uh, the uh, tech telecom competition uh, uh, issues, um, and Markey. It, it really does two broad categories of things. The first is largely uh, non-helpful, non-productive. It uh, increases the FCC's ability to fine robocallers uh, and increases the statute of limitations so that they can go after uh, these firms for a longer period of time. But as we all know, econ- financial penalties have done nothing to stem the tide of robocalls. Uh, it's been a completely futile uh, approach. But uh, the other thing that the bill does is it uh, requires the FCC to require telecom carriers to implement what's known as the STIR-SHAKEN framework. Uh, Those are acronyms that basically uh, uh, stand for cryptographically uh, signed and authenticated uh, trust anchors. So what this means is uh, as calls transit from carrier to carrier, each carrier will be able to verify the authenticity of the phone number uh, and the uh, caller that it's coming from. And this means non-forgeable uh, caller ID. Uh, the uh, legislation would also um, make clear that the FCC can not only uh, allow but require carriers to block calls from known fraudulent numbers. Um, so this is really about turning the telephone system from what largely has been since the 1980s an unauthenticated, almost anonymous uh, uh, call uh, permitting architecture 
to one that requires and uh, has strong authentication built right in. Uh, this is, it's too much to say this is a silver bullet against robocalls, but uh, is about as close as we can get to uh, a silver bullet. And uh, it's really a very important tool in the arsenal. Hallelujah. Okay. So uh, well, the, the bad news, yep. I just need to say, there has been some discussion that uh, uh, the House Democrats want to add to this bill an increased private right of action a strengthened private right of action like we have under the TCPA, mm. um, that mm. could kill the legislation. And as we've seen with the TCPA, that private right of action is nothing but a, a payday for plaintiff's lawyers. It has done absolutely nothing to uh, stop robocalls. Um, so hopefully uh, House Democrats will just follow the Senate um, and take the uh, uh, 97 to 1. I've got no idea what uh, uh, Rand Paul was thinking with his no vote on this. Well, I do, but I'm not going to say it in uh, a recorded <laughs> Not in polite company, um, yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, even if it were impolite, I wouldn't say if it's being recorded. Um, so long as the House Dems don't screw this up with a private right of action, this is a really good bill. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to close it off there, I think, because we're already way over time. Uh, two stories we didn't get to, or three stories that we didn't get to that I uh, would have loved to do. Uh, uh, there's a, a magistrate out there who wrote the dumbest analysis of uh, how uh, putting a fingerprint on a of iPhone uh, uh, is testimonial that I have ever seen. Uh, um, uh, and uh, you can find it online if you like. Uh, there's a really interesting and I thought completely wrong um, uh, federal uh, decision saying that uh, the right to vote is intruded upon by picking the wrong voting machines. Uh, that was just a motion to dismiss, so it's not a final judgment, but it's opening potentially enormous can of worms. Uh, uh, and David um, had a uh, really interesting piece on what uh, the U.S. intelligence community should be doing to uh, shore up its capabilities in an age in which uh, cyber is uh, uh, democratizing most of the tools that we have used in the past. So that's on lawfare and definitely worth taking a look at. Uh, okay, thanks to Paul Rosenzweig. Thanks to David Chris, Thanks to Gus Hurwitz. Uh, this has been episode 265 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please do send us uh, suggestions for interview guests uh, or errata that you uh, uncover uh, uh, in the podcast. Just send that to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I've been pretty good about uh, tweeting out the, the likely stories, so follow at Stuart Baker if you're interested in what stories we're likely to cover. Uh, and if you like them, we're more likely to cover them. Please leave us a review on iTunes. We're getting a lot more reviews, and I think that is helpful. We're also setting new records for listenership, so that's all to the good because you've already given so many good reviews, or at least four or five star reviews plus uh, snarky comments about my uh, uh, suppression of uh, Nick Weaver. Coming up, we're going to have uh, Harvey Rishikoff and Joyce Carell talk to us about deliver uncompromised and supply chain security, especially at DOD. I want to thank Christy Jorge, the producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, assistant and editor. I'm Stuart Baker, host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 